I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. I've been visually impaired all my life. I've had what you could call a love-hate relationship with cycling. I might have already mentioned my very first bike. It was a yellow, child-size, equipped with training wheels. My parents wanted me to enjoy cycling much as they did as children, and still do, as a matter of fact. Sadly, it only took a couple close calls with distracted drivers on the residential streets of my neighborhood for me to give up on cycling for a number of years. As an adult, though, I discovered tandem cycles. I realized I could enjoy the benefits of cycling without the very real fear of being run over by a car or cycling into an obstacle. I realized through my own experience that people with disabilities want to cycle and that the humble cycle is open to endless adaptations to accommodate a range of physical differences. Today, we discuss disability and cycling. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyetha Gupta, joining you from Accessible Media down in Toronto. And of course, as usual, I am uh, have my hair in a bun uh, pulled away from my face. And I'm in a purple sweater, kind of a dark purple with long sleeves and a crew neck. Uh, today's show is really exciting for me because I've had, as I said in the opening essay, a bit of a love-hate relationship with cycling. And I was fascinated to learn that people had actually done research into uh, cycling for people with disabilities. Why do people with disabilities cycle and what sort of adaptations exist uh, to allow as many people with disabilities as possible to enjoy cycling? I have two guests today. Glenn Norcliffe is Professor Emeritus and Senior Scholar in the Department of Geography at York University. Glenn, hello, and uh, it's so good to, good to have you on the program. Good morning, Teresa. And with Glenn, I'm joined, uh, joining Glenn today is uh, Ron Bieling, who is a professor and graduate chair in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto. Ron, hello and welcome to you as well. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Joyta, and thank you for the invitation. Um, I, I'd just like to quickly add, Glenn and I have been trying to get together for months, and it's been impossible, so uh, until your invitation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad we could facilitate a meeting. Uh, my first question may come as a very silly question, but I'm going to ask both of you in turn. How do a couple of geographers get interested in cycling? Uh, Glenn, I'll start with you. Well, I think my route to this project is different from Ron's. Um, I've been working for year, years on industry, became interested in the production of bicycles, most of which are made in China. And as time went on, uh, because of COVID, I couldn't go to China. I started looking at other aspects of cycling, and it dawned on me that bicycles and disability are highly connected. And the more I looked at it, the more I saw the potential for cycling and disability. What about you, Ron? How did you get interested in this topic? Yeah, I mean, I think my interest started around the age of um, three <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when I sat on my first tricycle. Um, and then, uh, of course, um, fast forwarding to uh, a few years ago, I uh, I, I started to teach a graduate seminar called the History and Geography of Cycles and Cycling, 
Um, I was actually inspired to do some of that work, um, having read Glenn's book, The Ride to Modernity. Um, you know, uh, but my interest in the intersection of disability, ableism and cycling comes from personal experience. So, uh, my, my youngest daughter, um, you know, is, is clinically labeled as having uh, spinal muscular atrophy. Um, and we have a lot of disabling experiences with uh, institutions, the city, um, the built environment <clears throat> and so on. And as an avid cyclist, I am still a passionate mountain biker and road cyclist. Uh, I wanted to figure out how to bring us together, um, around this, this passion that I have. Um, and so we started to look for ways to, uh, enable us to cycle as a family, which kind of brought me into the, um, um, uh, this, this sort of idea of looking at reimagining the cycling body, um, and, uh, looking into the technologies that are available, not like to help us out, but also, um, broader community, more broadly. Yeah. Um, I know it's a lot of ground to cover, so maybe, you know, Ron, you could start by describing a few and then Glenn, you could take over and describe the rest. But in the article that you that was published in the Disability Studies Quarterly, where you talk about um, cycling, uh, you talk about different types of adaptive cycles, for want of a better phrase. So what are some of the kinds of, of cycles that you were looking at in this article? Ron, I'll start with you. Um well, I mean, Glenn has such a, a deep understanding of the history of cycling technology, and I think a lot of the breadth of the technologies really came from his his knowledge. Um, I sort of um, got interested in some niche <laughs> niche technologies like um, off road e mountain biking, um, uh, and also you know uh, cycle trailers. We have a, a bike trailer um, that's made in Canada. That's that's what we use uh, with my daughter. Um, and then, uh, also during the, the course of writing this article, we were actually kind of partially living at Holland Vorview, uh, Children's Rehabilitation Hospital because my daughter had had a, a, a procedure. And so just walking around the halls there, I started to notice adapted tricycles. Um, and you know, I, I'd sort of <laughs> imagining what Glenn might do in a situation like that. I'd get down on my knees and look at look at, look for a label, where was it manufactured? Uh, who was the manufacturer? And, and I think that may have brought one of the examples into the article. Glenn, I'm going to bring you in here. You're clearly the cycling expert here. What are some of the types of adaptive cycles that you talk about in the article? Well, perhaps I could start at the very beginning, if I may. The bicycle of cycles were actually invented by a paraplegic clockmaker in Germany in the 1600s. As far as we know, that was the first recorded cycle. And it was a hand cycle. So uh, being a paraplegic, he could sit. It was a tricycle. And he took the kind of mechanism that he was working with every day, making wooden clocks, and he just scaled it up to a bicycle-sized machine or tricycle-sized machine and found that he could get around this little town of Altdorf uh, on his cycle. He could go visit his family. He was a Lutheran. He could go to the church and things like that. So he got mobility out of upscaling his clock mechanism to a tricycle. Um, 
So hand cycles are one of the main types of cycle for people who are paraplegic, and they've been particularly uh, seen and used after major wars. People Like the First World War, a lot of people suffered from leg injuries. And I can remember as a child, um, after the Second World War, hand cycles being frequently seen on the streets because of leg injuries in the war. Uh, I think the most exciting developments recently, without going into all the many types, is what they call clip-ons. Some people are largely confined to wheelchairs, uh, being paraplegic, but the clip-on is a device that clips onto a wheelchair, lifts the little front wheels of the wheelchair off the ground, and you've got a hand cycle, like a tricycle. But with e-assist, because e-assist makes a big difference for people who have physical limitations, uh, you can cover surprisingly big distances. And I interviewed a lady in London, England, who'd come from central London to Brixton Market, something like eight or ten miles, on her clip-on. And it was amazing what she could cover, and she'd got routes through parks and bike routes and so on to get there. So those are one or two of the types of bicycles, but there must be uh, at least a dozen major types now we could identify. And just out of curiosity, uh, Ron, I know this is a, a passion project for you, but aside from the work that you and Glenn and your co-authors have done, how much more research is there out there about the use of uh, adaptive cycles by people with disabilities? Is this something that's been looked into in some depth, or is there a lot of ground left to cover? You know, um, sadly, but somewhat unsurprisingly, I think we've been breaking some new ground here. You know, I, I think part of it has to do with... Uh, all, all cycling literature and uh, planning literature that's very much kind of rooted in normative ideas about bodies and what bodies can do. Um, and, um, but I have found, you know, in preparing for this interview, I, uh, uh, I, I started to look into um, bike share uh, again, which is one of the things that actually brought me to this, this subject as well. I was, I was curious about the possibilities of bike share for um, providing mobility to disabled persons. And there are a few, um, there's one piece that's been written and published on this, and there've been a couple of examples. Uh, there's the MOGO system in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I think Portland did a, uh, a pilot test. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the literature is relatively limited, um, which is both troubling, but also indicates an opportunity. Well, I mean, if you don't mind, I'm going to switch gears, as it were, just and I'll stick with you, Ron, because you mentioned uh, again that you you want to cycle with your daughter, and it's something that you think about on a day to day basis as it impacts you as a family. There's been a lot of conversations taking place uh, here in Toronto, certainly, and I dare say in other municipalities about bike lanes and biking infrastructure. And you mentioned bike share, which is uh, cropping up in cities all over North America. In the middle of all of this conversation and dialogue, and dare I say it, even a resurgent interest in cycling, how much attention is anybody paying to a disabled cyclist as someone for whom we should be planning infrastructure and putting things in place? I'm I'm so glad you asked this question, actually, because it's you know it's it's uh it's something that that troubles troubles me, and um, I would say that you know there's been a uh, fantastic um, uh, sort of 
um, a critical mass of folks who for years have advocated for um, increased bicycle infrastructure, not only in the city of Toronto, but in many other uh, major global cities. But I think a lot of that has, again, been done um, thinking about normative ideas about um, cycling bodies, but not just the cycling bodies, <laughs> uh, sort of about um, other folks who might use the shared space at any particular moment in time. So, um, you know, there there are uh, um, design um, guidelines out there for planning bike lanes uh, from the start with disability in mind. Um, we've had some terrific uh, difficulty in um, in moments where we've needed to go somewhere and uh, in our in our mobility van and my daughter has had to go against the uh, um, vehicle, the, the vehicle flow in the vehicular right of way, and then crossing across the bike line to get to a curb cut. Instead of um, instead of there being a curb cut adjacent the uh, the disabled parking spot, which is immediately adjacent the bike lane. So there's a lot there's a lot more work that needs to be done there. I think the example that I just talked through is probably best um, better. Um, illustrated uh, in in other ways, but it, there's a lot of complexity there. And you know, there's we know that there's some tension between pedestrians and cyclists within these spaces. Um, I think there's also uh, the use of bike lanes by folks who are using powered mobility, right? Um, e assist bikes uh, and uh, people who are in power wheelchairs, like my daughter, who from a legal perspective are actually considered pedestrians um, or she considers herself a pedestrian as well. But uh, so, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's both a fascinating site of uh, tension, um, but again, an opportunity for change. Glenn, if you think back to how people with disabilities have made use of the bicycle or just in cycling in general, was this most often used as a form of rehabilitation and therapy if someone was, as you mentioned, after the Second World War, um, helping veterans recover from injuries. Was that the primary use of cycling or uh, did people with disabilities, in fact, uh, adapt cycling for themselves uh, to to achieve uh, maybe other aims outside of, of therapeutic ends and rehabilitation? Well, let me answer that by backing up a little bit. You are asking about literature. There's actually quite a big literature on the therapeutic aspects of cycling, mostly lab experiments and sort of medicalized approach to cycling. Um, but what I've found is that there are groups like in London, England, I, I met with a group called Wheels for Wellbeing, which is promoting and working with local councils and the central government too to promote cycling for people with disability. Uh, one of the amazing programs is at Finchley Park, London. Uh, and that's where they've collected now about 60 therapeutic and adaptive bicycles. And uh, up to 50, 60 people at a time are cycling around a running track and they limit them to an hour because there's so many people want to engage in this activity. So if you provide the right environment, a safe environment, as of course the Danes and the Dutch have done by building cycle lanes, 
30, 40 years ahead of most other countries, uh, then there are safe places to ride. Um, and I've read of people partially sighted in Holland being able to ride with the flow, as it were, in cycle lanes. The importance, as Ron has said, of having the right infrastructure is crucial. That's a very good point. Glenn, I'm going to stick with you. In the article, you talk about um, the social construction of technology. Uh, for those of us who aren't academics, myself included, what does that mean? Well, to oversimplify, there are two interpretations of technology. One is great inventors invent everything. Social construction stresses that the users matter, that the people who are ultimate users, and that's where my work wants to go if uh, I can hang in there for the next few years. It's on how people with disability contribute and have a major say in the types of adaptations made to cycles to make them usable for people with a wide range of disabilities. And just to add on to that, uh, we have to remember that the, the greater percentage of people with disability are in the third world. And one of the things I want to do is I, I've selected Indonesia because I have a bit of a network there of people in cycling and cycling with disability to find out how in a, in a country with low incomes, people are adapting, developing technologies at low cost often by cannibalizing old bikes and welding bits and pieces together. But as far as I know, nobody's looked at this, and it's very important. I think it is too, because I, I grew up in India, and I think I've seen a lot of that, where people have relied on, on cycles as a way to get around, and it's inexpensive, and uh, people have shown a great deal of ingenuity in, in taking an old uh, cycle and turning it into something else. Ron, what do you think is at play here? Is it uh, manufacturers that are responding to the needs of uh, cyclists with disabilities and putting out, uh, adapt, you know, putting out models that that meet some of these needs, um, and and or is it is it more akin to what uh, Glenn is describing, where it's people with disabilities themselves that are uh, taking uh, the cycle and reinventing it to suit their needs? Oh. I think in some measure, it's all of those things, um, you know, that there's a, uh, one of the challenges with, uh, you know, we'll, we'll call it adapted equipment, um, are the, uh, the, uh, it's kind of a supply and demand issue, you know, um, uh, equipment costs are inordinately high in part because the market is relatively small. Um, this is something that we experience with my daughter's mobility aids. Um, but even the, the white uh, trailer, which, um, you know, I think it was around $1,500 plus tax. Like, I, I'm a little bit concerned about access to technology because of the, um, because of the, the retail end of things. Um, sorry, I just had something pop up on my screen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I think there's a, a need there and a growing awareness uh, and, and interest. Like, you know, I, people need to ask the question, like, why wouldn't disabled people be interested in cycling? Right. I mean, I think that <laughs> that's the starting point. And then um, and then uh, in, in manufacturers to a degree are responding to market demand, but um, they're making, uh, you know, the margins are greater per unit. 
because there's a smaller uh, market in general. I don't know if I'm explaining that quite well, but I, you know. No, no, you are. You're making a lot of sense. In fact, I, I will. I'll even go so far as to say that you're reading my mind because I was going to talk to you about how each of these specialized bikes can cost a pretty penny. Uh, I, I think I mentioned that I have uh, that I joined a tandem cycling club, and each of those tandem bikes is ruinously expensive. It's certainly outside the reach of an individual person to to buy one on a whim. Uh, you know, it, it's tens of thousands of dollars. Ron, what thoughts do you have about reducing the price tag? Is this somewhere that government can get involved um, and subsidize the cost of some of these uh, cycles? Because right now, as far as I understand, it's left up to the family to, to shoulder those costs. Or you pool your resources and you and you join a tandem cycling club the way I did, but you don't really get to own your bike. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, um, fiscal policy could play a small role. I mean, the disability tax credit hasn't changed in the uh, 12 years that we've been accessing it. Um, you know, it, uh, I think, um, and I'm not even sure we could uh, uh, apply the cost of adaptive cycling technology against income in that context. But in order to do that, you have to have income in the first place. So there's, a, there's an interesting intersection here between privilege, disability, and ableism. We're able to, to purchase this expensive trailer because of because of our income. So I think, you know, why not look at the question of subsidy to, and, and you know, why can't the assistive devices program, for example, in the province of Ontario, consider partial funding to uh, technologies of this sort that broaden the experiences of everyday life for disabled persons if they they want to cycle and and potentially their um, relations. Glenn, I know you're looking at uh, doing some research in Indonesia, but you heard Glenn, uh, you heard Ron talk about just some of the challenges with affordability of of adaptive equipment and cycles in Canada. Do you think there's some scope here for um, for people with disabilities in Canada to get together and? Uh, and and maybe apply some of that ingenuity that we talked about a few minutes ago in the program. You know the you know the person who invented the first cycle was a person was a paraplegic. Do you think there's some scope here for people with disabilities to start to tinker? And while the government, you know, go back and forth deciding on the best funding model, to actually try and come up with something that might be more cost effective for people with disabilities. Well, there's there's two situations that present themselves here. One is recreational. Cycling. You know, I gave the example of the track in Finchley Park, London, where people are sharing. Uh, uh, that type of program, sharing, is obviously brings the cost way down. In fact, a volunteer group basically created all those bicycles, so there's very no cost involved. But if you want a bicycle for your daily life to get from A to B, to work, to study, whatever it is, then it is expensive. And uh, the most obvious solution that I can see is some kind of subsidy program. Uh, because, I mean, I, I gave you the example of the clip-on. The clip-on cycle is, with e-assist, is over $10,000. That's the sort of price. Can you bring the price down? Well, the problem is that most of these cycles are customized by the maker. Uh, it's difficult to buy. If I wanted, if somebody wanted a bicycle made in Germany, you're not going to get that tweaking and customizing to the needs of each individual. And most of these disability bikes, adaptive bikes, do need 
tweaking, if you like, customizing for the individual needs. And that means you've got to have proximity. You've got to be reasonably close. Uh, that means small production, small volume, and unfortunately, high prices. Um, to Glenn's point, I can confirm that with the white trailer, you know, it doesn't come out of the box ready for Asha's body. Um, and so there, there are a number of bolsters and even other things that we've done with pillows and, uh, and, uh, um, <laughs> to, to try to make it more secure and a more comfortable ride for her. Um, you know, we actually use the cushion off of her power wheelchair, um, as the base in the, in, in, in the stroller. And that cushion I think is around is nearly a thousand dollars. Um, so, you know, uh, that, that ingenuity piece is always there. It, there's an element of creativity that I think um, we fail to imagine and fail to capture, um, 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 not just within the disability and cyclone space, but disability and everything space. Well, on that on that note, though, we do have to wrap it up. Glenn and Ron, I, I wish we had longer to chat, but uh, I'm looking at the clock and we are just about out of time. Thank you both for being here today. It was so great to talk to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. Glenn Norcliffe and Ron Buehling talking about their article dealing with disability and cycling technology, a socio-historical analysis that was published in the Disability Studies Quarterly. And I will think about both of them the next time I can on a tandem bike. As I said to Glenn and Ron, we do have to run, but thank you so much for listening. If you've got any feedback, you can write to us at feedback at ami.ca. You can find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. You can give us a call at one 509 5545 that's 18665094545 and don't forget to leave your permission to play the audio on the program our technical producer is Marka Flalo my videographer today has been Ted Cooper Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for podcasts at AMI Audio Andy Frank is the manager of AMI Audio and I've been your host Chuita Gupta thanks for listening mm-hmm.